So if you could turn to um, Luke chapter 12, I'd like to read three different texts uh, before we begin. And I confess to you that I, uh, I go uh, into these, these sermons and I start down one path and I end up going down a, a different one, and so I use different texts at times, and I, I attribute it uh, to you praying for me, and I, I continue to pray myself um, to be tender, to be within proper boundaries. So the text that I'm going to read, you don't match the ones in the bulletin perfectly, but um, that's okay. So uh, let me uh, start by praying, and then I'll read, okay? Uh, Lord, I pray and ask that you'd attend to us by your word, that we would be um, eager hearers of it, um, that the words that I've prepared, Lord, would be true and effective and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so stay standing. Uh, Luke 12, verses 4 through 7 is what I'm going to read, just 4 through 7. Jesus talking. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, now we go to Matthew uh, chapter 6 next. Matthew chapter 6. Kind of a corollary verse, a passage. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. This is the, the main text that I will eventually get to. Beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Last verse, passage, is Luke 17. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Luke 17, verses 20 and Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You may be seated. 
Those are passages I point you to today. We're not going to work our way through all of them exhaustively. I will touch on them later. But first I'd like to start with an overview of why we're here. Not here, here. Why we exist. I want you to pause and consider what it is that God is doing. Simply. What's his plan for you and me? After all, we're only, we're only meant to play our part in his story. That's the agenda. Our part in his story. God made me and you for his world. His reality, his kingdom. And I just want to play my, my part well. Don't you? I want to just play my part well. Many people don't think in those terms. And I get it. They think that the world is their oyster. That it is up to them to become all that they want to be, all that they can be. That if they put their mind to it, they can accomplish anything. You've heard that kind of talk. That's not reality. And great multitudes of people are going to find themselves frustrated at the end. Once they chased after their dreams. And if you stop and think about it, isn't it how we got into trouble in the first place with God? It's about me. It's about my dreams. It's actually a devilish philosophy. There are many decisions, I guarantee you, you know this, that we don't get to make about life. Some of them are pretty obvious, right? Your birthplace, you didn't decide that. Parents, siblings, hair color, height, gender, even the capacity for certain skills, gifts that God gave you, opportunities that availed themselves. These we're really outside of your control for the most part. Some of those things you could alter, right? Change the color of your hair. And... But some things we can grow in us, right? We can grow like a carrot. We can grow like a, an ear of corn. We do affect life. We're not robotic. We make decisions. We think things. We put forth effort. But God made you. You are his workmanship. He sets limits on you. Yes. And provides opportunities for you as well. He does. That does not make your life insignificant, that he's doing these things that he's orchestrating. It's still your life, in a sense, to think with it and do with it. It's just that he made you with a plan. And it's his design of you and of me. It's that that gives meaning to life. There is a primary duty that we all share. We're supposed to subject ourselves to God and his kingdom. Many people refuse to do it. But as Christians, it becomes really a grand privilege, a privilege. And I remember when I first became a Christian, it was an eye opener for me. I was a younger man, so 
if I'd even call myself a man at that point. Tracy didn't call me a man until eight years into our marriage. But before we got married, I was in my second year of college, and I had to make decisions about important right and wrong things. And I turned to the Bible, I turned to God, I prayed to him because we were brought up that he was the one we worshipped. And I said, if you're real, answer my questions. And he answered my questions. And it wasn't long after, as I started reading and meeting some Christians, that I landed upon this one verse that became my maxim, my guiding verse. And it was, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And I thought, I got to lock into that. It was the thing I came back to again and again. God and his kingdom come first. Simple. That's simple. It's clear. I will submit to him. I'll submit to what I learn of him, his institutions, his commands, etc. Whatever he shows me, I know, obviously, fall short. You sin. Sometimes sin becomes habitual for a while. Wrong. Repent. But still this verse, still this maxim, seek ye first. You see, when Jesus gave the instruction, he was comparing it to what people usually spend their time doing. What people usually run after in life. The things, the surviving, the putting away for the future, the eating, the drinking, the, the homes, the working. In the text, Jesus was encouraging his disciples to quit worrying so much about those things, those circumstances. He says, God knows what you need. You worry about him. So today I want to consider God's story. And this is this still the series on fear, anxieties, and phobias. But I think this is hugely important to get right. Men were made to commune with God. And I shouldn't even be doing it like this. Because men were made to commune with God. He breathed into Adam's body a living soul. That was not God in Adam's soul. It was Adam having a soul. It was the part that people typically consider what the image of God was in man. Eve had one too, a soul. And both of our first parents were able to carry on with God in a lovely, holistic way that no other people have been able to carry on that way quite since, because there was no sin, except for Jesus. Jesus carried on with his Father in that manner. The first couple had a body and a soul that worked in holy harmony, and their souls communed with the Lord in clarity. No dropped balls, no distraction. That is what souls are supposed to do. Adam and Eve feared God as creatures. But, it, but that fear, it was in a way that leaned toward him, not away from him. That's as Michael Reeves would put it. Like a, 
like the way a child would fear his father, a good father, okay? The child knows his dad can always be trusted. His dad is always on his side. He still fears him, but it's a fear that stimulates love and affection. The child just knows his place before his father. Fearing God, it shouldn't be thought of as a frightful fear. It shouldn't be. It's a fear instead that stimulates love, stimulates affection. It seems like fear and, and, and love don't go together, but they're meant to go together. You shouldn't think of fearing God as a frightful fear of a guilty sinner who wants to run away from God. That is a fear as well. No. You should be fearing God as a thankful, forgiven sinner who now leans into God and loves Him. St. Augustine called the one fear, the afraid fear, servile fear. Like the word servant. He called this other fear, this fear that leans, the good one, filial fear, as in family. Well, our first parents, mom and dad, chose against God, didn't they? They chose not to fear him properly and abandoned paradise starting right there. Where? In their hearts. They unloved him from their souls. It was like a breakup. They became ashamed because they were guilty, all of a sudden, of wrongdoing. This killed the communion they had with God, which is vital, I tell you, vital for any human to, to thrive. Communion with God, it's vital for you and me still, today. So Adam and Eve made that cursed decision to eat. And how can I say it? The light, the light went off. Off. They were still alive in one sense. They were still operating. They did not lose their souls, but now their souls were, were blind. They'd come under a curse. There was coldness. And they were struck with servile fear and uneasiness. They felt naked and vulnerable. Their bodies were not going to work as well either and would need to die. Man, up to now... They had only known good, but evil had just introduced itself. God removed, removed them from the paradise of Eden. And in their new arid but shadow-filled wilderness east of the garden, they became anxious. They began to worry about many things, what they would eat and what they would wear and drink and how they would find shelter in this less friendly world. Even animals were afraid, and they were afraid of each other, man versus beast. The weather became a problem. Man turned against man. There were devils that threatened to undo them. As Luther sang in his hymn, the world was filled, filled with those miscreants. But our God is good. He's loving and gracious and 
He intended to recover and restore mankind. He made us special in his image. He valued people. He would not leave things blind and dying. He would make them see again to come alive and be new. This is his world and his story. And where people, where we tend to mark the beginning of things with our start at the garden... God's story is an eternal one. It has no start point. The members of the Trinity have always been. He has forever loved and been good and peaceable and kind and all that is of God's character. You and me, right now as his Christian people, well, Our comfort and confidence, our security and peace, these can only come when he recovers and restores us to that original communion with himself. Somebody, some of you, might not even know what that communion really is. Others of us struggle with it. It's our great privilege, Christian, to carry on with the Lord as was first given to Adam and Eve. Though our situation is a bit different than theirs was, for we commune with God now, we do, but we commune with God now in an imperfect world. Adam and Eve, it was paradise. We commune with God now with our imperfect souls in our imperfect bodies. Nonetheless, God comes into us with his power to commune and he intends to commune and we can have success. You may be asking in that soul of yours, Is it even possible, really, to commune with God? I find it difficult to impossible. Yes, it is. It's the beauty of what Jesus did for us. He has given us the opportunity to know God and love him from our inner man, again, with our heart, soul, and mind. He wants to abide with us there. His spirit, his spirit will do all the heavy lifting. Does that help? His spirit will do all the heavy heavy lifting. You and I, we just have to want him to. That's all. We just have to want him to. And sometimes, oftentimes, we don't. The beauty of what Jesus accomplished is God is now with us. God is now in us. Don't walk past that. Learn to walk with it. And when you walk with him and talk with him, it's in this way that all of your fears now, all of those anxieties, all those phobias will begin to dissipate. It might take some time, but they will begin to dissipate. If you're downtrodden, he will lift you up. It might take some time, but he will lift you up. I promise you that. God will give you proper perspective as you get to know him better. 
I don't know. I'm just throwing this in. Sometimes Christians get the idea that, well, I became a Christian. Now I'm going to live and wait to die and be with God. You become a Christian, that just starts. That just starts it. You've got a long, wonderful, maturing, hard, but blessed walk to take. You will begin to see things as he sees them when you commune with him. Clarity will come. You'll begin to see how your life fits into the ebbs and flows of his kingdom now come. But only, I say only, if you walk with him. This is what God's kingdom is about for each of us, keeping in step with his spirit. Learning to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is his purpose for people. Just as it was in the beginning is what Jesus has come to restore. Don't complicate that. And I'm serious when I say don't complicate that. You'll see what I mean in a little bit. So whose story provides the great narration of history? It's the story of the triune God. It's the story of the Son sent to recover and restore mankind and to rule over the kingdom of heaven and earth where men, angels, and all creatures live This is all that everyone's life is supposed to be about. That's what life is supposed to be about. It's it's man's purpose to subject his soul and body and work to this cause. There's no outside reason for your existence. At least there shouldn't be. Beware. If we lose this sense of God's great story, it is a result, a result of deception, of subterfuge by God's enemies. It could be the work of devils, sure. It could be the work of hard-hearted people. It could be your own deceptive heart. Whatever the agent, the devious effect is to draw you as by gravity away from God's purposeful story to the black, the black hole of nihilism, meaninglessness. That's your choice, God's story or eventual nihilism, meaninglessness. Since the fall of man, people everywhere and in each generation, they interpret things without God in them. They crave the obscurity of it. They complicate thoughts. They they layer arguments. They attempt to view the world but are committed to to shading shading their eyes from his light. They're going to interpret the world, view the world, but without him in it. So they come up with elaborate schemes. God It says God made man upright, but he's gone in search of many schemes. That's what I'm talking about. One after the next, history provides examples of how men prefer their wisdom to God's wisdom. Genius, genius thinkers have given us a multitude of different interpretations of life. All to help, all to help, and this is a, This is what their motive is. I'm accusing them of something here. All to help pacify the consciences of the earth's citizens who prefer the black hole to God. Sinners are relieved that they can explore all kinds of theories and philosophies and religions. Oh, people are intelligent. People are intelligent. I've often said 
Sinners get very smart when it comes to protecting their sin. Then, then they cunningly avoid any accusations of guilt because they downright hate shame. They don't want to be shamed. No guilt, no shame. It's not hard to imagine then how very far-reaching and deeply thought out we tease these alternative realities. Alternative realities. False religion, false philosophy, false anthropology, false psychology, false sociology. The Apostle Paul recommends 1 Corinthians 3, Verse 18 and on, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. I read a, a brief review of Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Idiot. I never read the book. Oh, my brothers call me an idiot all the time, but not the way Dostoevsky meant the word, I guess. This is what the reviewer said, and I thought this was wonderful. And I'll hopefully convey what's being said here. The meaning of Dostoevsky's The Idiot is that belief is more important than intellectualized knowledge. Knowledge that is purely philosophical and held by the rational faculties without being embodied is useless. Kind of like saying, what good is it no, no, if you know something, if it doesn't get acted upon, right? The most morally in-tune character, back to the book The Idiot, the, the most morally in-tune character can lose every debate and still be the most virtuous among the intellectuals, merchants, and nobles. The reviewer goes on, you're not a better person because you can win an argument on ethics. Dostoevsky isn't just saying the best philosophy is lived, he is saying that intellect isn't even a prerequisite for living out a good philosophy. The best men in his stories are not the intellectuals. They don't think too much. They just are. It's the next two paragraphs I, I find most compelling. She says, I think this story is especially worth savoring because intellectual third spaces are cropping up. Like today, she's modernizing things like salons, common areas, progress organizations. And more and more people categorize themselves into predefined philosophies, examples, tr traditional Catholicism, techno-optimists, psychedelics. And they make golden calves out of their own ability to reason so-called big ideas. False or foolish wisdom is very easy to find, and the more people think, the more detached they become from the truly good. The titular idiot, this is still her, doesn't mean stupid. This is the part I really want you to hear, especially since my brothers call me idiot so much. The term idiot doesn't mean stupid. It isn't derogatory at all. Dostoevsky isn't saying it's good to be ignorant. Idiot means something more like simple or innocent. And most of all, someone who holds beliefs in their hearts instead of the intellectualized version of a belief in their heads, fooling themselves by thinking they're so great because they know what it means to be a good person rather than being a good person. Now, I'm not sure where this, this woman is coming from, but it's, 
But if this point of Dostoevsky, you know, is true in his, in his book, then I want to read the book. Because Dostoevsky is a Christian, was a Christian, so I ordered the book. Anyway. I do believe the people of this world would be far better off if they rejected concocted ideas of their own making. The what-ifs. Wouldn't it be neat? The what about this is of man's imagination. We think we're so smart. God made us smart, but we think we're so smart that we can somehow what if away from him. We love to try and come up with exceptions to the rules, don't we? Usually so that we can act more at liberty to do the things we want to do. But we'd be better off if we all came home like prodigal sons to accept God's lovely purpose explained in his word. Reality, look around, reality is true to God's story. God's story. Everything complies with God's story. And the story is truly filled. It is with heroes and villains. Some are visible, some are invisible. And all people are participating in this story, whether or not they want want to claim to be. We take one side or the other. And sometimes we Christians, though we've joined with Jesus Christ, we don't act like heroes at all. So the story involves God's forgiveness. It involves his patience and mercy. God's story has battles and wilderness times, little enclaves of hearth and home, but ultimately the son who rules, he gains one advantage after the next. His Kingdom involves love, it involves mercy and forgiveness and peace and justice and revenge and vindication for all the land and its people, but also up into the heavens, filling every corner and crevice. God sent his son, and the son became the king of heaven and earth. Jesus, while he walked with men, went about his kingdom, breathing life into it. He healed, he cast out demons, he taught He rebuked, he loved, he suffered, he died for us. He brought light into darkness. And when he was going about his business, he told his his disciples that they should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His kingdom is supposed to be your primary focus. Not your kingdom. Many people spend their lives building nest eggs, gaining riches, making sure they have enough. Their primary concern is their homes, their families, their work, their checking accounts. The fault with that is the primary interest part. Oh, I'm not talking about rich people here either. Okay, who are likely as enter as likely as to enter the kingdom of God as a camel is to get through the eye of a needle. Jesus had said back then. I'm talking about all strata of society. I've known more poor people that were covetous and miserly than the rich people I've known. Jesus' point in Matthew 6 is that you should be single-minded in your pursuit of God. He starts with that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 20. The eye is the lamp of the body. Verse 22. No one can serve two masters. Verse 24. What he's saying is you be concerned about God. These other things, to be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on, verses 25 through 31. These things are what the Gentiles, in other words, the non-believers, get anxious about. They run after these things. Not you. 
Jesus wanted them to realize that life is not about their individual kingdoms. Life is to be lived for God and his kingdom, always, without divided loyalties. You cannot serve two masters. Interestingly, a corresponding passage is that Luke passage that I read, where Jesus appears to be on the very same topic. It's short, it's abridged. But in that verse, he says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Jesus has added here that seeking God first and his kingdom, it could result in bad things happening to you, to your body. He goes so far as to say, do not fear those who kill the body. As if he's saying, their power over you is limited. Killing you is the most they can do. What does that say to you? Killing your body is the most they can do. Your soul, they can't touch that. Your body can be put six feet under, but that is the worst that anyone can do against you. They can kill, they can't kill your soul. They can't separate you from God and his love. They can't alter or prevent the progress of the kingdom. In fact, Since the king of the kingdom knows what you need, and since he made you for his purposes, and since he is all-powerful and everywhere present, then if you seek him first and his kingdom, there's there's nothing but good that can come. Even when things don't seem ideal, when they seem the opposite of delightful, When your soul and body are in pain, when you begin to wonder if your life matters at all in his story, you think, how can I matter? Why must I go through this futility? I want my life to be vibrant. Is that too much to want? Why are there circumstances that go against me? You're frustrated. I didn't get the part, the role in God's story. I didn't get the part that I tried out for. I don't like the part I got. What about all that? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Your body may get buried in the earth, but the world can't bury your soul. Fear God and lean into loving Him. Keep it that simple. Be the idiot. I tell myself, I'd give it up, the trappings of my life in America, right? To become a boy like Mishu Kane, who Tracy and I supported 30 years ago, third world, Rwanda, Mishukane, probably nine, nine years old. I'd give up my place for his, his place if he was really, I tell myself this, if he was really loving God fully in a way that I'm not. Perhaps he loved God with his heart, soul, mind, more deeply than me. I don't know. I'm imagining. He could have. Living simple, carrying water home. They all carry water home on their heads to their mothers and stuff. Tending, they tend to goat, live in a hut. That was the typical story we had. I think he went to Christian missionaries' school. That was part of why we were supporting it, where he probably was taught about Jesus and learned to start loving him. I, I hope he loved him. I know Jesus wanted Meshukane 
to seek first God's kingdom, just like you and me. Tracy reminded me the week or two ago, I think, that Meshukane was assumed dead. Assumed dead. We got the right one. We, we had two, Berejigna and Meshukane. And, but I think it was Meshukane that was assumed dead due to wicked tribal genocide. They killed, this was in Rwanda, and... Um, the government became Hutu, and they had formed a lot of Hutu militias. Hutu was one of the people groups there. And they went about killing most of the Tutsi tribe and all of the Hutus that didn't, that were moderates, right, let's just say. They didn't hold up the Hutu banner as they should have, so they killed about 800,000 people slaughtered. But I can tell you one thing. The wicked could not touch Meshukane's soul. Right? And I can also tell you this. God was present. He was powerful. And he knew everything that that young boy needed. I hope it was a sweet communion between the two of them. I assume it is now. Congregation, if you're anxious, if in your anxious ordeals, in your anxious ordeals, what is it that you have determined about God? Have you reduced him somehow in your heart soul and mind, to be less than he is. Maybe you blocked them out. Maybe there's other things you lean into. Have you decided that some things are out of his realm of expertise or ability? I hope the opposite is the case. If not, that's where you need to grow in your faith. Again, we don't start Christianity and say we're a Christian, and that's where it stays. You may be anxious or fear now, but often these things are measured by what? Degree, aren't they? These things are measured by degree. Jesus' instruction is not always, repent, you sinner, as if you committed some blatant sin. Sometimes he will simply ask, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he will rebuke the winds for you and, and the sea around you. In verse 30 of our Matthew passage, the Lord asks, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith? By calling your faith little, Jesus implies that it can get bigger. Faith can grow. But what does it, what does it take to grow? Hmm. I'll speak more to that next time. For now, the the key thing to remember or to learn is that it's not your story, it's his story for you. Seeking first God and his kingdom is not about building your own kingdom and propping up your own life. You'll find no meaning in that. That is to live a black hole life. We have no purpose unless it's his purpose. I'm going to close with two, two quotes. And the first is from a Christian psychologist by the name of William Kirk Kilpatrick, and the second from St. Augustine of Hippo. And both are designed to take this sermon and connect it to the next one, where you become the protagonist of your story within God's story. And here's Kilpatrick. He's, he writes some. Um, very good. When a man comes to the point in his life when he begins to ask, what's the use or what's the point? 
Or what does it matter? It's a sign that he has lost the narrative thread of his life. One of the major tasks of Christian psychology is to help him find it again. Christian psychologists are in a much better position to do this than their secular counterparts because they are in touch with the tradition in which every individual life, no matter how desperate and seemingly pointless, can find a place. Christian psychology can encourage people to see their lives as stories within a larger story, to locate themselves within a tradition of people that have been similarly tested. Many life experiences which appear meaningless or accidental from secular perspectives are more properly viewed as points of testing or revelation or transformation from the perspective of the Christian drama. Christian psychology has the task of helping us go beyond the level of merely working on our problems or seeing our lives as clinical studies and on to the level of discerning the distinctive part we are meant to play and the importance of playing it well. Great quote. If you didn't follow it, I'll let you read it. As you consider your role then in God's story and kingdom, I quote now from St. Augustine, who begins the first chapter of Book 10 in Confession. This is short with these sentences. He prayed, let me know thee, O Lord, who knowest me. Let me know thee as I am known. Power of my soul, enter into it and fit it for thee, that thou mayest have and hold it without spot or wrinkle. This is my hope. Therefore do I speak, and in this hope do I rejoice when I rejoice healthfully. Pray. Lord, I pray and ask that uh, that long sermon, the uh, attention and clarity wasn't lost on your people. Pray that this would benefit them, and that you would be honored in Jesus' name.